Gresham College presents Leonardo, Rapunzel and the Mathematics of Hair by Professor Raymond E. Goldstein. This is a talk about how physicists and mathematicians think about hair. Now, all of us, especially those who still have a full head of hair, have, I'm sure since the time of our youth, been fascinated by many of the properties of hair. Its volume, its body, the way it responds to the wind, its sheen. And scientists are not immune to these attractions. And in fact, if you look around the world, you'll find many, many examples of physicists, mathematicians, chemists, and biologists working toward a quantitative description of the properties of hair. Now, one place you can find this uh, in particular is in the study of computer graphics. So nowadays, with many animated films, one of the great challenges, as you can see here in this lovely character from the animated uh, feature Brave, is an accurate representation of large numbers of hairs. So this voluminous, amazing curly hair, of course, is really supposed to be composed of thousands of individual hairs. And it's not at all obvious how, from a physical and mathematical perspective, we're supposed to make a representation of large numbers of hairs that is convincing to the eye. And this is especially true if you think about dynamics. A group in Paris, which I highlight at the top here, has made some extraordinarily convincing progress in actually representing the dynamics of hair. On the left, you see a real human shaking her head back and forth with her hair flowing. And on the right, you see a computer representation that can be achieved nowadays with the proper mathematics and physics. And if you think about what would happen if this model had just a single hair on her head and rotated it back and forth, you can appreciate the description of many interacting hairs is very complicated compared to the properties of one. So in my talk today, I'm going to tell you how motivated by these kinds of problems and actually by some particular questions in industry, a small group of us were led to think about the physics and mathematics of hair in trying to answer some of these industrial, connection, uh, industrial questions. And I think that this research will provide not only some enjoyment uh, and laughter, perhaps, but, but also a, a case study in how basic and applied research can interact. So the way that this began was actually when I received this email. So it says, Dear Professor Goldstein, I work at Unilever's Research and Development Labs in Port Sunlight in the UK in the Hair Research Division. Now, Unilever is a global manufacturer of personal care products like shampoos and conditioners. And my background is in what's called soft matter physics, which is the study of things like polymers and fluids and other deformable materials. And some of the challenging problems in hair care depend on us understanding hair array statistical mechanics. Now, that may not mean much to you, but my background is actually in statistical mechanics. Statistical mechanics is that subject which tries to connect the microscopic properties of individual objects like atoms or molecules or hairs to the macroscopic properties of large numbers of them. So I had never known that there was a subject called hair array statistical mechanics, but I could kind of appreciate uh, what the writer was talking about. Although I have to say that actually I thought this was the Nigerian email scam at work, um, but it didn't have the, the request for $100 million of assistance at the bottom, so then I knew it was actually real. So they said, basically, from your background, it seems like you might be able to help us with this, uh, so would you be interested? And so I decided to actually contact Unilever and take them up on this offer and ask them uh, more about the project that they proposed. And so one day, we went uh, to visit Unilever and sat around a table holding ponytails. These are standardized switches of hairs. They have about 10,000 hairs in each of them. And the Unilever labs are full of hundreds or thousands of these from all over the world with different hair types that are used to test conditioners and products of various types. 
And here we have middle-aged balding men sitting around the table holding uh, ponytails like this. And we discovered that Unilever's primary interest was actually understanding hair tangling, something that I'll tell you about at the end. Uh, but in, and in that uh, subject, one of the more complicated issues is understanding how randomly curved hairs interact with each other and can get locked up in a comb. And as we were sitting there looking at this, I thought, well, if we want to get into this problem in some elementary way, maybe we could just try to understand the shape of a ponytail. So I'm going to tell you a story about how we've come to understand why a ponytail has that characteristic shape, and then we'll talk about some other related phenomena. Now, one place to begin, as is often the case in, in biological sciences, is with Robert Hooke's observations. So in his famous book, Micrographia, in 1665, he showed us uh, wonderful things that one can see under the microscope. And in his beautiful drawings, one of his uh, uh, fascinations was in the structure of hair, which he obtained from his head. I presume the smaller pieces that you see there were probably shaved off, and some of the longer pieces were maybe plucked out of his head. And he, I think, can be credited with first observing that the cross-sectional shape of hair is typically circular, maybe a bit elliptical. Hair has this kind of scaly structure on the outside. Uh, and in fact, unlike certain plants, which have a hole down the center of their stem, hair is actually solid through the interior. And in the uh, section five here, you'll see that he discovered the concept of split ends in 1665. Uh, things were all flittered, uh, sometimes into two or many half a score or more uh, little pieces. So this is maybe the background to start understanding the basic properties of hair that we need to think about in order to understand macroscopic collections of them. But actually, hair is really very complex on a microscopic scale. So for instance, there's that scaly outside that, that even Hooke saw. But what he couldn't quite see is that there's a kind of hierarchical arrangement of structure that goes to the smallest scales inside an individual hair. So the cortex, the main body inside, is itself divided into a bunch of cortical cells. And each of those is composed of a large collection of things called macrofibrils. And each of those is a collection of microfibrils, all the way down to the scale of individual protein molecules called keratin, which are on the scale of nanometers, 10 to the minus 9 meters. And they have a particular coiled structure that gives to them a certain kind of elasticity. And ultimately, that's what gives the whole structure its characteristic elasticity and springiness. Now, in electron micrographs that you see at the bottom left there, you can see that hair indeed can be circular in cross-section, but different racial groups, different color hairs often have different microstructure. They can have an elliptical cross-section or something in between. And so let's start talking about some of the basic numbers and mathematics that goes with hair so we can appreciate the problem that we're confronted with. So if you have a full head of hair, you have something like 50 to 100,000 hairs on your head. Let's take a round number. The typical growth rate of hair, let's say, is a centimeter a month. If you do the math, that turns out to be 4 nanometers per second. Okay? And remember that those individual protein molecules are a few nanometers. So we're talking about adding a stack of those molecules per second or so. Now, hair has a density a little bit greater than that of water, about the same as wool. And if you look around the world, you'll see that the typical cross-sectional diameter of hair ranges from about 40 microns to about 100 microns. 100 microns is a tenth of a millimeter. And the worldwide average is about 80 microns. Let's call it a twelfth of a millimeter. Now, if you put together the physical density and that cross-sectional area, you'll arrive at the mass per unit length of hair, 
which has this ridiculous um, quantity, 65 micrograms, 10 to the minus 6 grams per centimeter. But there's a better way to think about it, which is how many grams per kilometer? And the answer is 6.5. So please remember that. But now think about it. If you have 100,000 hairs on your head, and let's say each of them is 25 centimeters long, so a foot long, that's 25,000 meters worth of hair. That's 25 kilometers of hair. That's how much we have on a a full head of hair. So this is a a complicated problem with a lot of material to deal with, and it weighs maybe 150, 200 grams. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the mathematics and physics of how we try to think about the basic properties that matter for hair. And there really are three of them, especially when it comes to describing something like the shape of a ponytail. So hair certainly has mass per unit length. We've just discussed that. Hair certainly has some kind of elasticity, some kind of resistance to bending, just like any mechanical object. If I take this comb, it resists bending, obviously much more than an individual hair. And it also has this random waviness or curliness that, of course, differs from one person to the next and can actually differ even within the hairs on a, on a given individual's head. So the simplest way to think about this is, is to imagine a little thought experiment where we have a hair maybe clamped against a, a surface here, and we force it downward with a force, our finger or some other force. We hang a weight from it. And let's suppose that force has a magnitude F, and we measure the deflection that we get down here, capital D. The theory of elasticity, which I'm not going to describe in detail, tells us that the deflection is actually proportional to the force. And there are two other quantities that matter. The length of this whole filament to the power 3 divided by a characteristic stiffness, which we call the bending modulus. This is a a function of the material properties of the object and its size. So what you see is that this is like a simple spring. The deflection and the force are proportional. And this factor L cubed is very familiar to you. If you have, for a given force, a short object, it's hard to bend it. But if it's much longer, it's very easy to bend it because you have that larger lever arm. So now we're going to try to ask the question and answer the question, what characteristic length of hair will actually be deflected by gravity? If you have a short haircut, a crew cut, as we call it in the U.S., of a few centimeters long, it's pretty clear it just stands straight out and gravity doesn't bend it. But if I have hair like this that's 25 centimeters long, obviously gravity matters. So can we understand the length scale at which gravity matters? And the answer is to say the following. Well, surely if the filament has some length L, that is this characteristic length, and gravity with a force proportional to the mass per unit length times the length and the gravitational acceleration can deflect it if the deflection is comparable to the size of the object. That would be a large deflection. So we take this law and put L on both sides. The L we're looking for is the force times the L of interest, cubed, divided by A, but the force we know is lambda GL. So now we have a relationship in which the unknown L actually appears on both sides. So this is what's called a self-consistent argument. Now, you'll notice that my relationships here do not have an equal sign. And in many places of mathematics, everyone is fixated on this precisely equals that. But what I'm doing here is an argument which is called a scaling argument or a dimensional analysis in which I'm neglecting all the factors of pi and 3 and 2, trying to focus on the physical quantities that matter to understand relationships between two different quantities. So if I look at this and say, well, the unknown L sits on both sides, I can just solve for that. I'll find that this deflection length is A over lambda G to the one-third. 
Now, if I use the material properties of hair, which are rather similar to that of nylon, I can determine what this A is. I know lambda, I know G, and I get five centimeters, which is pretty much exactly right. So now I have the possibility of talking about whether a given piece of hair is long or short. And this brings me to an important point in mathematics and physics, which is that if I give you an object, a quantity that actually has units, like the mass of something, or the speed of something, or the volume of something, can I say it's large or small? And the answer is not in absolute terms, because I must compare it to something. The only things I can say are large and small are pure numbers, like 5, or 1,000, or 0.001. And so in order to decide if a given piece of hair is long or short, from the point of view of the physics acting on it, like gravitation, I will form the ratio of its length to this characteristic length. And it's conventional in physics and mathematics to name these dimensionless quantities, these pure numbers, after either the discoverer or the popularizer. And I think there can be no other name than the Rapunzel number, RA, for this length. So a hair cut where the hair is a few centimeters long will have a Rapunzel number less than one. And it will be stiff from the point of view of gravity. And this, having a length of 25 centimeters, has a Rapunzel number of about five. And that's a reasonably large number. And that means that gravity affects it significantly. So that's the first example of how we can get some physical intuition about the properties of hair by physical arguments like this. Now, a second thing is that when I hang a piece of hair from a support, there is a tension in it, a tension just like you'd find in a piano string. And we can basically understand that because if I hold the, the object from the top, I must apply a force to counterbalance the weight of all the material below it. And that tension will therefore vary along the length of the filament. It will be maximum at the top and zero at the bottom, and it will just be the total amount of material, lambda g uh, times the length left, l minus z below my point. So this tension, it, just like a piano string, will mean the filaments will resist being pushed to the side, and that will have an important uh, consequence when we come to discuss uh, the, the actual properties of ponytails. So we've seen tension, we've seen weight, and now we have to talk a little bit about elasticity. And this goes back to famous work of Euler and Bernoulli and others who developed the mathematical description of objects that resist bending. So, of course, an individual hair has very little resistance to bending because it's so incredibly small. But we'll still need to talk about that because if you look at the actual shape of a ponytail, you can see that there is curvature to the, uh, to the individual hairs. So imagine I have a hair like this blue one here which is meandering around, and I wish to describe mathematically how tightly it is curved. The simplest way to do this is basically to say that at every point along this uh, filament, I can construct a circle which is tangent to that uh, point and measures the radius that precisely matches uh, its shape there. And if that radius is p, then the curvature at that point is actually 1 over p. And we call that the curvature because it's, it's essentially uh, a local description of how bent the filament is. And so over here I'll have a smaller curvature, here I'll have a different one. And Euler and Bernoulli showed us that the energy necessary to bend an object uh, basically looks like our friend this bending modulus times the curvature squared. So that's the simplest law of elasticity. It basically says the object resists bending in any direction away from straight, which is the condition uh, when kappa equals zero. However, if you think about it, if you look at individual hairs, pluck one out of your head right now and look, 
you realize that real hairs are not straight, even in isolation. So for instance, here's a collection of individual hairs that we've imaged with a high-quality imaging system and fattened up so you can kind of see what's going on uh, from a given ponytail. These um, standardized switches are actually obtained from generous donors all around the world who uh, I'm sure get paid handsomely for donating their hair. And so even on an individual person's head, you can see that from one hair to the next, these built-in curvatures vary wildly. But this means that this object these objects are happy to be bent and twisted on their own. In other words, the energy to deform them is not just curvature squared, but in a sense, any deviations from these shapes are what cost energy. And it's the randomness of these curvatures from one filament to the next that makes it so hard to think mathematically about how to characterize the system. But if you were to grab a bunch of hair and squeeze it, what you're actually doing is straightening out those random curvatures, and that's costing energy, and that's giving a kind of springiness to the hair, and that's what we'd like to get at. So in fact, if you dissect a ponytail and just take images of all of the hairs and then just overlay them, in a sense, reconstructing the ponytail, you'll see that it produces the same kind of flaring pattern that you see in the real ponytail. So much of the actual shape comes from the randomness of this curvature, and that's what we'd like to try to understand. So here's one way to, to view it. This is a, a little animation of a bit over 100 hairs that have been extracted from one of these commercial switches obtained from uh, uh, a place in New York City. And uh, when we reconstruct these shapes, we can measure the square deviation of the lateral position of the hair from its average. And what you see is that it actually grows as we move down the hair. And we can measure the local curvature actually squared, just so it's a positive quantity. And that also grows as we move along here. So the act of actually constricting the ponytail and letting it dry in that form has created uh, a spatially varying curvature and meandering. But the basic scale of it, you can see here, is, is on the order of centimeters. Now, Leonardo, which is one of the names in the title of this talk, actually made a very important contribution intellectually to understanding hair long ago. So in his notebooks, and in particular on the, proper, the proportions and movements of the human figure, he showed this picture of water flowing past the supports of a bridge. It happens to sit opposite a man with some curly hair looking at it, but we're not quite sure whether these two are supposed to go together, even though they're on adjacent pages. And what he says in his characteristic writing style here is, observe the motion of the surface of the water, which resembles that of hair, and has two motions, of which one goes on with the flow of the surface, and the other forms the lines of the eddies. And if I'm generous in the interpretation here, what he's actually saying is that the flow past this support has a kind of average to it that's sort of smooth, and all those eddies are deviations from that average. And we should think about dividing the flow into those two, uh, those two features, and that it is like hair. So that's what we're going to actually do in trying to describe the mathematics of the ponytail. So imagine I have a ponytail, and I want to characterize what, on average, the hairs are doing at every point within this ponytail. Well, there are two quantities of interest. If I were to construct a plane cutting across the ponytail, 
One thing that would be of interest is how many hairs per unit area are actually crossing that plane, some measure of the, the density of the system. And we'll call that uh, rho, the density. It's the number per unit area crossing a plane perpendicular to the fibers. And the other thing I could do is construct a vector that tells me where the hairs are pointing on average. Of course, there'll be deviations from that. But on average, you can see, for instance, where I've drawn it here, that that vector is an accurate representation of the local orientation of the hairs. Or I could talk about the angle that the hairs make with respect to the vertical. So the hypothesis in our analysis is that the features that I just told you are all that matter, namely the energy per unit volume inside this bundle is basically proportional to how many hairs I have per unit volume, the elasticity of the filament, as Euler and Bernoulli told us, the gravitational energy associated with the uh, mass per unit length and the gravitational acceleration, and how high I am within this, and then some other unknown quantity I'm calling U with brackets around it. And that's a, f uh, a very typical way of throwing under the rug all of the things I can't explain. Okay, so we're going to imagine that there's some contribution to the energy that comes from these colliding hairs and see the consequences of it if all I know is that it depends in some way on this local density row. Now, the other thing we can do is talk about the simplifications we can make to this model. And the simplest one you can imagine is just to assume that the density of hair within uh, a given bundle is pretty much uniform at any height. So as I take a cross-section here, obviously the density of hairs will be different here than here because the bundle has flared. Uh, but I can imagine that if n is the total number of hairs, that a uniform density would mean that the number of hairs inside a radius r is just proportional to the area of a circle of radius r, and hence would go like r squared. And if the outer edge of the ponytail is capital R of the vertical coordinate, then this would give me a uniform density that just scales with the outer edge. Now, that's kind of interesting, because it, what it means is that I'm writing the physical quantities of interest in terms of the shape of the outer boundary. But I don't know the shape of the outer boundary. That's what I'm trying to find. But something else I can say is that if you go back to my little angle that describes the direction that the local orientation makes with respect to the vertical, this hypothesis that everything is just smoothly varying would tell us that it's proportional to the slope or the tangent uh, to the curve at the outer boundary and just scales with the distance I am. So in, when I'm at the center, the angle is zero, and it just goes to whatever the angle is on the outside. So this particular ponytail is actually an average over five different orientations of a ponytail like this. Average so we get rid of any kind of intrinsic bias. And you can see that it's very smooth. So we developed a, an imaging method by which we could look at ponytails, large in number, and extract accurately the outer edge of the ponytail and see if we could understand that shape in terms of the physics that I described. And this is what you discover. And this is hiding a lot of mathematical analysis, but I think it will, it will explain physically what's going on very clearly. So if I look at, at, at the various physical quantities, the pressure inside this ponytail from these random curvatures, the weight acting from gravity, the tension in the filament, and the contributions of elasticity, what I discover is that they vary very strongly with distance. So for instance, we know that the tension... Uh, must be maximum at the top of the ponytail and must go to zero very 
near the end, and this is a logarithmic scale, so this is becoming extremely small. Very near the clamp of the ponytail, we're compressing the hair a lot, and therefore the pressure is very large, and we're also forcing the filaments to be bent, and that means, to be straight, excuse me, and that means that there's a lot of elastic contribution. But if we move down the ponytail from that clamp, what we discover is that the dominant contribution is basically from the weight, which is trying to pull everything straight, uh, and the pressure, which is coming from this elasticity. So what that means is that we can take the measured shape of a ponytail and deduce what the internal pressure is inside of it. And this is actually a very interesting result, which looks something like this. So first, we actually can measure the radius as a function of position down the ponytail. And what you see is here's a bunch of ponytails from real experimental data. And this is the shape that we would have if there were none of this pressure at all. The ponytail would be very narrow and compressed against itself. Now, years ago, a fellow named Van Wyck, trying to understand the properties of wool, actually came up with a kind of law for this pressure based on the curvatures of filaments. And you can see it doesn't actually fit particularly well. But the actual pressure that we measure swells the ponytail, so it's much wider radius than it would have uh, in the absence of, of random curvatures. And so when we actually measure the pressure, which we call capital pi, as a function of radius, various ways from analyzing the images, what we find is that it's a straight line. It actually varies linearly with the radius and goes to zero at some characteristic r star. So a force that's proportional to displacement is called a spring. And so this analysis actually shows us that something we should have anticipated in the first place, that the net effect of all of this is to create something like a spring, where this prefactor depends on the curviness of the hair and its bending modulus and other such physical quantities. Okay, so now we have an empirical measurement of the pressure. All the other quantities we know, we know the bending stiffness of these filaments. We know their mass per unit length, and therefore we should be able to test this theory in detail. And here is, to borrow a, a phrase from Isaac Newton, the, the crucial experiment. I take from these experiments a full-length ponytail, shown here, and I measure its shape, I deduce the relevant parameters, and I construct a theory in various ways. This prefactor, this uh, amplitude of the pressure, if it's just a constant, actually gives us a prediction for the shape, which is actually pretty similar to what you see. And if you get a little bit more sophisticated and let this vary with position because of this spatial dependence to the curvature, you can get a slightly better fit. But the crucial point is that if I cut the ponytail shorter and shorter, as you see here, I get a sequence of shapes which become ever more conical. And if that is matched by theory, then we'll feel good. And as you see, as we trim our hypothetical ponytail shorter and shorter, it becomes basically a cone. And so this tells us that we are actually quantitatively capturing the essence of this problem, which is a balance between uh, the weight pu pulling downward, the bending elasticity, and the fluffiness of hair, which is pushing out and causing this spring-like behavior. Now, the properties of hair are, of course, not only static, but dynamic. And so in the second part of my talk, I want to spend a little time talking about the motion of ponytails, and how we can understand some of the characteristic things that we see in everyday life. And I've 
put up here a slide about a very important paper written by the famous physicist Michael Faraday, who's important in the theory of electromagnetism, that would seem at first sight unrelated, but I want to tell you a little story about this. So this paper from 1831 talks about a particular class of acoustical figures and certain forms assumed by groups of particles upon vibrating elastic surfaces. So what he was talking about are what are commonly known as Schladni figures or Schladni plates. You take a solid object like a piece of metal or wood, you put sand grains on top of it, and then you take, for instance, a violin bow, and you stroke the side of this plate, and you'll find that there's a dancing pattern of sand grains that arranges themselves into regular patterns. And you can see in this that there are regions where the grains move up and down and accumulate, and there are regions of of, uh, what we call nodal lines, where the grains are moved away. And so Faraday was very interested in these patterns, uh, how they're formed, how they depend upon the properties of the grains and the way that you excite the, uh, the medium. But in the appendix to his paper, he made a generalization of this problem to something which I'm sure you've all experienced, which is what happens if instead of sand grains on top of a surface, I have, for instance, a body of fluid in a container and I oscillate it. So there are two places where you've probably seen something like this. Imagine you have a cup of coffee that's actually a styrofoam cup and you slide it across a surface. The stick-slip behavior of the styrofoam will make this jitter and you'll see a pattern of dancing waves on the surface. A second example is if you take a glass of wine and you wet your fingers and you rub it around the rim, you'll hear this wonderful singing. Uh, But if you look carefully, you'll see that the surface of the wine is actually set in motion in the form of waves. Now, what Faraday was interested was the patterns of these waves and how they related to the vibration of the container. And he did a very careful and exhaustive study using different kinds of fluids, different kinds of containers, different sizes, to the point where he could find oscillations that were very slow so that he could actually see what was happening. And this is now called the Faraday instability. If you shake a container of fluid uh, sufficiently fast, you will actually find these waves. But what is not apparent until you do clever experiments like Faraday is that the oscillations of the container happen at one characteristic frequency, which you control, and the oscillations of the surface happen at another. And in fact, you often find a kind of checkerboard pattern in which there are two, let's call them black and white regions, oscillating up and down out of phase with each other. And the crucial thing that Faraday discovered was that the frequency of oscillation of these surface waves is exactly one half of the oscillation of the container itself. And this is a a generic behavior of systems that are driven periodically in a certain fashion, and it's known as a subharmonic response, meaning below natural resonance with the driving frequency. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, let's look at a ponytail on a jogger. So here you see a beautiful example of a woman jogging down the street with a nice steady camera behind it. And as her head moves up and down, you can see that her ponytail moves from side to side. And if you look carefully, it's not completely obvious, but if you look carefully, you'll see that For every up-and-down motion of her head, the ponytail goes halfway through its motion, and it takes two complete up-and-down motions of her head to actually arrive at one complete cycle of the ponytail. Now, this is not obvious, 
and it calls out for a mathematical explanation. So I want to spend a little bit of time telling you about how we come to understand that. So very recently uh, passed away Joe Keller, one of the great applied mathematicians of the last century. And Joe was famous for many contributions to mathematics uh, and many humorous and amusing contributions uh, to mathematics and physics. And one of the papers that he wrote late in life in about 2010 was about exactly this problem. He says, the jogger's ponytail sways from side to side as the jogger runs, although her head does not move from side to side. The jogger's head just moves up and down, forcing the ponytail to do so also. And he tries to understand mathematically how this can be. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting and amusing problem, and I'll, I'll tell you later that it, it was rewarded in an appropriately amusing way. But there's an interesting question here, which is when you're confronted with a complex physical problem like this, how do you make a model that you can use to extract interesting physical behavior from? How complex does the model have to be in order to make progress? So Keller imagined three classes of models. The simplest one is just a rigid rod. Let's imagine the ponytail is just a solid object that is like a pendulum. A second, maybe better representation, would be some kind of flexible string, which is free to meander around, kind of like an individual hair might be able to. And a third one, which might be a bit better representation of a ponytail, is an elastic filament, where there is some resistance to bending, and it doesn't become curved in arbitrarily complicated ways. So, of course, a pendulum oscillates because there's a competition between the inertia associated with its mass and the gravitational restoring force coming down. So Keller was able to understand much of what's going on by just looking at the simplest description uh, of this pendulum. And his analysis looks something like this. We basically say, here is a pendulum. Again, it has some angle that describes uh, its uh, orientation with respect to the vertical. It's got gravity pulling down on it. And now we're going to take its support and oscillate it up and down at some characteristic amplitude A and frequency omega. So normally a pendulum would be just subjected to gravity, and so there's a natural frequency that it has as a consequence of gravity. But now it's in an accelerated coordinate system. It's basically subjected to an additional acceleration, which comes from the acceleration of its support. Now, I want to point out that this problem is a bit different than, for instance, a child on a swing, which is being pushed periodically by his or her parent. There, you're pushing at a certain frequency, and the child responds exactly at that frequency, in the sense you're tuning yourself to push at that frequency. So the response of the system is at exactly the same frequency. Now, this is an example of something which is parametrically forced. One of the parameters of the problem is actually varying in time. And so that means, in this case, that gravity has been augmented by this uh, extra term associated with the frequency of the driving. Now, this example is an example of uh, a class of problems that are described mathematically by what are called Hill's equations. And Hill, a very famous British mathematician, was studying these problems in a very different context than ponytails or water. He was interested, actually, in celestial mechanics, where we were focusing, for instance, on the motion of the moon around the Earth as affected by other heavenly bodies, which are, of course, themselves orbiting around. And so from the point of view of the moon, they come further and nearer and produce a periodic effect on it, 
And his question was, what is the response of the system? And what he showed was something quite remarkable, which is that if omega zero is the characteristic frequency of this pendulum by itself, and by the way, in this case, it turns out to be the square root of three times gravity divided by twice the length, uh, then if omega is related omega zero is related to the frequency of forcing omega by this simple relation, an integer divided by two, then there will be a response. And in this case, it would correspond to lateral motion of the ponytail. And there are a whole series of possible responses for one, two, three, et cetera. So actually, the case k equals one corresponds to responding exactly at half the frequency of the drive, which is exactly what we think we see in, in the ponytail experiment. So Keller put all of this together, analyzed this problem, thought of it as a forced pendulum, and basically said, okay, I know that as the head goes up and down, that's forcing. The head goes up and down twice per full step. And so I can deduce, basically, from the characteristic frequency of my ponytail how many steps per minute I ought to take in order to excite this motion. And the answer is about 140. And if you look up the typical speed of athletic joggers, you'll discover that that's spot on. So I think that's a a pretty neat example of how very simple mathematical reasoning, with in some sense a a model that doesn't deserve to be so good, actually can get you quite far uh, in understanding these complex physical systems. However, we are all here to do science in the scientific method, and this means that we should try to compare things directly against experiment. And the difficulty of doing real experiments on joggers out in the field, you you can readily appreciate. So one of the things that we'd like to do is have a controlled experiment where we can actually oscillate a ponytail very precisely, make sure there are no lateral motions to it, and see whether this instability actually occurs as explained. So in Cambridge, we have built a, a rather elaborate experiment in which we can study this. It involves a very precise motorized drive, a high-speed camera, and a very nice uh, control over the imaging so we can see what's going on. And here is an example of an experiment in which we are oscillating the ponytail at a frequency well below the necessary frequency to produce the instability. And you can see that while there are motions to the ponytail, it breathes in and out, there's no lateral deflection. And in fact, you can go in with your hand, hit it from the side, and it will oscillate a little bit, but come back to this stable behavior. So this is a very slow oscillation, but it's meant to demonstrate that there is a regime in which you do not get this parametric excitation. On the other hand, you can now crank up the uh, frequency of excitation, and then you see this. So this is taken with a high-speed camera at several hundred frames per second. And you can see the beautiful dynamics which we can now trace back to Keller's analysis and to, um, and to that of Hill. So each time the bob goes up and down, you'll see that the ponytail traverses one half of its full cycle. So if we start here, the bob goes up, the bob comes, whoops, sorry, the movie just started over, right? The bob goes up, the ponytail reaches its maximum, the bob comes down, the ponytail's back here, the bob goes up again, the ponytail's up here, and the bob comes down again, and the ponytail is back there. So precisely this factor of two. Okay, so this, I think, 
provides uh, convincing evidence that Keller was right. We can understand this property from this very simple mathematical form. And I want to close with just a discussion of where we might go later with this research to give you an idea of what maybe the next time I see you, I, I can tell you in the way of understanding the physics of hair. And that is to look at the problem of tangling. Now, we've all experienced this, whether combing our own hair or maybe that of a, a daughter or a son, that you take a comb and you bring it through the hair and at some point it just locks up. And everyone's shaking their head. You've seen this. You've experienced this. And so we, we say, oh, the hair is full of knots. But it's not really a knot in the topological sense. And this, these are filaments that have free ends, and so I, I can unknot them in principle by just passing them around and through. This is something different. This is some kind of jamming transition in which the hairs have locked up, not because they are wound around each other in a real knot, probably more from the friction that they have against each other. And I'm sure humans have been worrying about this for millennia. But we'd like to actually have a controlled experiment where we can see what's going on. And I don't know if all of you are familiar with the, the famous baseball manager, Yogi Berra, in the US. He was sort of an amateur philosopher on the side. And he was famous for many things. And one of them, he said, was that you can see a lot by watching. Um, and, and I think this is a good example. So I want to close by just showing you a little video of the simplest example of an experiment to study tangling. So here's the setup. We are looking with a camera down onto a light table in which we have a comb that is embedded in some perspex supports and pointing upward like this. And over here is a clamp that's attached to a motorized actuator that will pull this bundle of hairs past the comb slowly, such that we can actually watch what's going on. And there are several things I'd like to point out in this movie as it plays. So the guys in the booth will now start this movie. It takes a few seconds to start. And what you can see, this is pretty much real time, is that, it's a bit jittery, uh, is that as the hair is pulled through here, you can see that it seems kind of relaxed over here, but it, it appears ever tighter here. That's the same tension that I was talking about that comes from gravity, but here it's coming from pulling. And as you observe this, you'll see that the hairs are being co-opted into this tangle ever more as the process occurs. And eventually, it all comes crashing down in the center here through a kind of disordered tangle that actually stops and locks up. And you can see the great tension in the hair here. It's pulled straight, but yet it was free there. So I hope by looking at processes like this, we can actually untangle this problem and understand what it is that actually gives rise to this very familiar phenomenon of tangling. Okay, so the last thing I want to say is that I want to acknowledge the people with whom I've done this work so that you can understand that, again, this was motivated by problems coming from Unilever Research and Development, and it was Patrick Warren at Unilever here uh, who um, uh, spearheaded this work, and Robin Ball at the University of at Warwick uh, in the physics department who formed this little team, and we were actually um, recognized for our work with something called the Ig Nobel Prize, which is not to be confused with the other prize of a similar name. It's meant to reward things that at first sound a bit funny, but then make you think. So I hope I've succeeded in making you think a little bit about how this very familiar object that we all deal with every day actually has a lot of interesting hidden physics in it, some of which is still to be figured out. Thank you.
For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.